Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with me, Oliver Lawrence, the host of an ever-growing podcast. And once again, I thank everybody for their support, questions and feedback on a podcast which I'm finding incredibly enjoyable to do. And, you know, one area of, of work which is somewhat of a, a, a sort of a secret area of, of policing life, but incredibly and fundamentally crucially important is the safe return of people that are involved in sort of a hostage situation overseas. Now, I want to caveat this episode with the fact that we're not going to be discussing the methodologies or the tactics of police, both here in the UK and overseas, of how people are successively returned back to the UK or to maybe other countries, because those methodologies are still very active and used today. So this is not a podcast about how people are rescued, but more exploring the life of an individual that's been exposed and run big teams. And I'm delighted to welcome Susan Williams, recipient of the QPM, onto the podcast. Sue, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Oliver. Good morning. Nice to meet you. So, like every uh, podcast start, I like to wind back the clock, Sue, and I want to ask you, first of all, why choose policing as a career for you? Uh, I actually knew, knew as a child as a, yeah, relatively as a child, you know, those black and white movies with Joyce Grenfell in. Um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do quite early on. My grandfather was also in the Met as well. So I have some lovely fond memories of um, of his version of police work as it was at that time in the 50s. And I just knew that um, I was totally focused, actually. Knew that the, what I wanted to do. And every time I was dragged into a, a career's discussion at school I just said I know what I want to do but at that time um, you had to wait until you were 19 before you were able to join so um, I took a job in the fashion industry whilst I waited to to reach the appropriate age and I liked that job very much it was very glamorous it was very beguiling and, and I guess I was sucked into it really particularly at that time in London it was very buzzy fashionable and I and I was I was young and so I began to have second thoughts about whether I would stay in, uh, in in the fashion world or whether I would do what had always been my dream, which was to join the, the Metropolitan Police. So I guess as a bit of a tester, really, I joined what's called the Special Constabulary. I suspect you're familiar with it. It's a volunteer um, police service that you do in your, in your downtime, really, after work and at weekends. 
And uh, I joined, and after a few weeks, by accident, I, I got involved in a quite high-profile case. And after only having been in the specials for six weeks, I, I made up my mind. You know, it was time to, to leave posing and start policing and actually pursue what I'd set out to do in the first place. So that's how uh, I ended up joining. So 1976, we're talking about a period in policing pre-PACE. You know, uh, the policing college at Hendon would have been a very different place in terms of still quite a male-dominated environment. What was it like for you, a young lady, stepping into the college and learning about this incredibly complex vocation surrounded by, you know, colleagues and, and other women that may have been going through the same process with you? Yeah, it was it was a bit of a culture shock at first because I the career that I'd had up to then that short career in the fashion was mostly women and I had gone to an all-girls grammar school so that I'd been mostly surrounded by women as well and so to find yourself at Hendon with only one other woman in your class who was a little bit older than me it that that was that that was quite daunting really but um, I think I quickly adapted I, I think I told myself at the time You've chosen this profession. You knew before you got here that you were going to be in the, mi- the minority. My grandfather, by the way, did try to talk me out of it. He, he really didn't want me to do it. So I'd, I'd upset some family members getting there. And I, I, I just said to myself, you've, you've got to get on with it. So I blended, I adapted. I think now, and this is looking at it through the lens, the lens of modern times and, and through my older eyes. Yes, there was a lot of... Uh, un- unappropriate behavior there, there there was a lot of um abuse of power but at the time and perhaps it was me being foolish but at the time you sort of thought you had to comment on it stop it but you you were never that affronted that you would ever report or, or do anything about it i i see it differently now than i did as my very very young you know, policing is an incredibly complex vocation. I speak about it regularly in terms of the legislation, policy and procedure that one has to learn and become accustomed to to be successful in the role and the position of the office of constable. How did you find the theoretical side of training as well as the practical side? Yeah, I, at Hendon, I, I didn't have any, any trouble. At that time, it was a lot of what they called A reports, which actually meant learning stuff off verbatim. Didn't mean had to understand it necessarily. You just had to learn it verbatim, and and I didn't have any any problems with, with that at all. And lo- lots of practical exercises where the stooges deliberately make your life uncomfortable and and try and create the they try to train to reality so that when you do eventually hit the streets, you're you're as best prepared for it as you can be. But I don't know that um, that I was totally prepared for for everything when I did eventually hit the streets. Do you look back at your graduation day with great fond memories, your family being there and celebrating the success of completing what is a very intensive course? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and the, the movies are all still there. My my father was like J. Arthur Rank, to be honest, with all the all the movie equipment and everything that, <laughs> that he had ready. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I I guess I did. I will always look back. I know that the Mets take a bit of a hammering lately, but I would always look back with pride at the 32 years, the, the men and women that I worked with, at what we achieved, what we did. And, and I don't say this cheesily. It, it was a privilege, really, for me to be part of the Met for, for 32 years of my life. So upon graduation, you're sent out uh, to Borough. Whereabouts were you posted? And were the, were the posting you received, were you excited to be going there? No, I, uh, I was posted to the, uh, the suburbs of London, to Barnet. And uh, I remember feeling quite disappointed because I wanted to go into the uh, the more sexy side of West End Central and the noisier and busier. But um, I uh, I ended up in in Barnet, which was which again was another culture shock. Um, I always thought I could change not, not change the world, but I thought I could make life better for some people. But you find that that's quite hard to do. And all the things I was brought up in a in a in a very nice middle class family home where love definitely reigned and where to be honest I think I was a bit of a princess. So all those things that you that you're protected from by your parents, you suddenly find at a very young age, you're dropped right in the middle of, of all these domestic abuses, child abuse, violence, and people are looking at you to take charge. And this this hasn't been your world. This this was something that was a a complete shock to me. And and I and I, I guess it 
perhaps that's why now they've, they've changed the age. You can't join as, 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 as young as I did then. But um, it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting and, and a fulfilling time. What I liked about it was it was exciting because you never knew what the day was going to bring, how you were going to help someone, how you were going to make that difference. And, and the I'm quite good at dealing with uncertainty. I think that's one of the traits of, of dealing with the world that I do, because nothing's certain in the world that I, that I work in. So I used to like the excitement of the uncertainty of the day. So as you've alluded to there in your answer is that you're faced with these significant challenges that you've never really been exposed to through your growing up. Incidents of domestic violence, serious road trauma, homicides, crime scenes, things that can be quite confronting to someone that's never been exposed to them before, sudden death. Um, was there any particular incidents in your first 12 months of training or with even the first couple of years where you were presented with some of these sort of very confronting incidents and you thought to yourself, my goodness, this job is actually going to provide me with some significant challenges, not only physically, but equally emotionally and how I process the scenes that I'm witnessing. Definitely. And then it was a different time, Oliver. Don't forget that. And believe it or not, there was there was still some respect for, for women officers walking along the streets in our capes and, and talking to people. And I think I realised that, I think that was the first time in my life I realised that talking to people about their problems, their issues, their lives, instead of being absorbed in my life, I think that was the first time I realised how much influence you can have over people once you know a little bit more about the facts and you try to understand them. And we used to, in those days, do an awful lot of beat walking. And, it, and walking the streets. And it was and it was walking those beats, I think, that, that I truly did realise the importance of good communication with people you had absolutely nothing in common with at all. And that, that had never happened in my life before then. After you'd done this first sort of 12, 18 months of training, you've been exposed to what we call, obviously, emergency response policing and working with the community and solving those problems. Was there, were you drawn towards a more investigative and detailed work of starting to investigate more complex crimes, drug offences and, and that like to sort of enhance your skill base? Yeah, I was seconded to, um, to the drug squad for I think about three years. And so I then experienced a completely different type of policing from, from what I'd known up to then, which we later became known as community policing. I went straight into the plainclothes work of the drug squad. And it was in the days where we considered that a, a kilo would have been a big haul. I, I know these days they, they, they completely don't. But in those days, we, we did used to think that. And so on the drug squad, I think that was where I realised that I wanted to aspire to be a detective. Also, I wanted to aspire to be a detective um, investigating murders. Because if you think about it, Oliver, the, the greatest and last tribute and acts that you, you can ever do for a murder victim and, and their loved ones is to convict the person who, who took their life away. So I thought that that would be, that would be the pinnacle uh, and I decided to, to aim for that after I left um, the, drug, the drugs unit. Now, I, I've, I've interviewed a lot of police officers over the last 12 months and, and a lot of those male detectives who talk about this environment in the 70s, 70s and 80s of the detective offices, you know, the detective sergeant, smoking going on, this sort of very bravado type environment. How did you, what were your experiences of stepping into what was still quite a male dominated environment, smoking and, you know, out there sort of finding informants and arresting the bad guys, very Sweeney-like, what was your observations of detective work back in that time? Yeah, you're quite right about the smoking. I can remember walking into CID offices and the smog and the smoke, you could hardly see people. And, and the nicknames that people had through their smoking habits at the time. How did, I, how did I bear in that world? The honest answer is just by being professional, but also trying to blend in. Did I compromise some of my values with, with regards that time when I look back now I possibly did but but also I was quite a determined young woman and so I would seize the opportunities to shine and some of my greatest sources of intelligence and um, and informants as we called them then were 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 the ladies that are sex workers they were really an, an, un, an untapped vein of very very good information and intelligence and I was very fortunate really in as much as I I did, um, I did have a, a few very good contacts in that world and 
when you come up with results, when you're in the police and you come up with good results, it's it's quite easy to impress people. And, and I think that's probably what happened. And that, that was going to lead on to my next question. How long did it take you to establish yourself within this group as, as a competent investigator, somebody that was always willing to go that extra mile to get the result? was that Did that take a little bit of time? No, it didn't take much time or, or effort at all, really. No, it, it didn't. Um, you know, they always say you're as good as your last job. Well, as long as you keep bringing in those last jobs, then you manage. And then we move on to sort of a period in your career where sort of you start looking at leadership capabilities and leadership opportunities at the rank of sergeant, that first step up of really managing people. But actually, obviously, back in those days, it's back into sort of operational uniform policing to support crews on the ground again. When did you realise that after the first few years that you wanted a bit of that leadership, you wanted a bit of that experience, you wanted to be able to sort of influence the decisions of others? I think the honest answer to that, Oliver, is when I saw other people not doing it so well and thinking... I could I could do better than that and I would want to do better than that and I, I can be better than that. And so I, I think that was probably my main motivation, which isn't the greatest one, but it's an honest one. What were some of the early challenges for you as a sergeant on the road looking after uniformed officers? Oh, well, uh, early on, I, I can remember as a uniformed sergeant briefing very early in the morning before Trooping of the Colour. And in those days, the officers that were used for such ceremonial events were usually the older ones who who had medals to wear because they had been in the military. And so I was, I was by far the youngest person in the room by about 15 years, I would guess. And I was briefing, I was briefing, a, they call them serials. It's a group of, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a group of officers who will be deployed uh, to aid the ceremony of the Trooping of the Colour. And so I was briefing them before we all got on the coach about where we were, what we were going to do. And halfway through my briefing, what one wag shouts out, it's all right, Sarge, we've been doing this since before you were born. So you, you automatically feel you've got to get your credibility. So I am quite quick thinking with, with quips. And I, and I just said, yes, but this time we're going to get it right. So listen. So there were always challenges, challenges like that. But you were obviously keen to get back into plain clothes because obviously the uniform sergeant position was only a short period before you were back in plain clothes as a detective sergeant. So you were back into that investigative world. Yes, the um, interchange, the rules at the time were that when you took promotion, you went into uniform. I won't say back to uniform because that's that's derogatory to my uniform colleagues, but you, you went into uniform for, for a year and then you returned to, to the CID up, up as the next rank, yes. And obviously we're going to talk about the latter part of it, so what, sort of your career in this whole hostage and negotiation world and the skills behind all that and what led to that. But had you sort of, at this point of your career, started to look at specialties within policing to sort of understand where you wanted to go or you purely focused on this sort of detective homicide route at this stage? I think I was still fixated on being a good homicide detective. And then I went back as a DS, I went back into another drugs unit, again, picking up information, talking to people, having good contacts, using communication skills from somewhere. Perhaps I didn't know I had them. And one of my line managers, whilst I was in that role, said to me, I think you will be good at this. Um, he actually used the phrase negotiation lark because it was relatively new in those days. He said, I think you'll be, be good at this negotiation lark. And the reason he said is you're always the sort of the peacekeeper, but but also you talk a lot. And anybody that knows anything about negotiation knows that it's 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 not about talking. It, it's about listening. So he literally used that phrase, what are you doing four weeks on Monday? And nowadays, what are you doing four weeks on Monday involves interviews, psychometric testing and medicals, I believe. So obviously uh, it was a lot quicker then. So I went on this course. Fabulous course. It's still running to this day. It's incredibly intensive. It's very tiring. You're, you're talking about people's lives. So this isn't a course for passengers. It's for people who want to be there, want to learn and want to listen. And when you come off that course, you feel very empowered. And, and I remember coming off that course with like a sort of a light bulb moment. Some of my more religious friends give it another term, but I, I actually think, yeah, I've got it. This, this, this is what I want to do. I believe in it. It works. And that difference that yeah, I joined the job as, as a very young woman thinking I could make a difference to people. And actually, I never really got that feeling that I had made a difference until I began the world of negotiation. And then it, 
it's it's amazing. I really felt, yeah, I am making a difference now and I want to do this. That was 30, ooh, 32, nearly 32 years ago now. I did not for one moment think that I would still be involved in negotiation 32 years later. I didn't think that then at all. But I have been privileged to, um, to still be doing it. And it's, it is a privilege. And I, as you can probably tell with the passion that I have for the subject, I am so lucky and I thoroughly enjoy the work that I do. It doesn't always go according to plan. And, and sometimes there are very sad aspects of it. Fortunately, they're in the minority. But it's, um, it's a wonderful occupation. Did the course change you as a person in terms of your outlook on society and the world? It made me conscious of so much I think I had not noticed about myself or taken for granted. The ability to truly listen to somebody instead of hear somebody. We hear people because we're distracted, aren't we? We're all busy people, we're not really listening. The main reason we don't, we don't listen is we're actually formulating the reply to something we're not listening to in our heads. So that's, that's a really good plan, isn't it? We um, also, if we're bored, we don't listen. If I don't agree with you, I, I'm not listening. So the course made me realise the importance of listening. It made me realise the importance of words. How often do we choose words carefully and think about the impact of them? You know, there's that poem, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And that really is not true at all. It's completely the opposite. Words can hurt very much. So, yeah, it, the course made me realise what I wanted to do in the future. So a bit of a career change. It made me um, understand myself a lot better. It made me understand how I can influence people in a good way, which I had never truly thought about before, I think. And it made me realise that some people need help from negotiators because we can make them realise sometimes that life is, is worth living. Inter um, negotiation obviously involves suicide intervention as well. So convincing somebody that life is worth living, choose life. Sometimes it takes people who have the skills of, of, of a negotiator to make other people choose life. And that's that's very rewarding work as well. So before we sort of go into more detail around, so obviously you became a formidable leader in the department um, in your career in that area, in that specialty, and really led from, the, led from the front and set the standards. There's obviously a couple of investigations that I'd like to sort of reflect on if I can. And, and, and the first one is the investigation into the untimely death of His Majesty uh, King Musheshe II. Tell us about that one. Quite fascinating, but uh, obviously there's a lot behind the scenes. Yeah, it was It was fascinating. It was at the request of the Foreign Office. The King Musheshe II was the King of Lesotho. And for those who don't know, like I didn't know when I was flying to a country I'd never heard of, Lesotho is a small principality in the, in the middle of South Africa. And the king had sadly passed away. I think he was in his late 50s. And there was a bit of a dispute between the people and the government as to how the king died. So they wanted a, a complete independent investigation to ascertain how, how he died. And um, I was part of a team that went over to investigate his death. And it was, um, it was quite, it, well, it was fascinating, really, to actually be a part of people's lives in Lesotho, to see some of the hardship, some of the poverty. And actually, I think I was there, I think, for a few weeks, six, five or six weeks, I think. And when I came back, I, whenever I switched the tap on at home or went under the shower, it made me realise how lucky it, that, that you are, really, to, to have that water, because I had been in a country where water wasn't easy. So investigating his death, yeah, um, sadly, as it transpired with all our investigations, it, it was a, a road accident. So um, that was how the, the reports and, and everything was explaining and... I was pleased to say that both the government and the people accepted our findings and our, our rather long report. And um, I believe that it's still a, a public document to this day in, in Lesotho. He was immediately, um, his son, King Letsi III, took over immediately from him. But it was fascinating dealing with the culture of a royal family in Africa. And it was fascinating immersing yourself in the villages to find witnesses and, and, and learning all about their lives. Yeah, so I have a special place in my heart now for Lesotho. That was going to be one of my questions, because I think one of the successes of investigators is establishing, importantly, rapport 
with witnesses so that they're able to share information with you and that you can use that to obviously build your investigation. And if there's somebody to be held accountable or a group of people to be held accountable for something that has occurred, you build up that sort of story so you can present it to, to the authorities. That's one challenge in a country that you know and you're familiar with. But it's another significant challenge where you're in a foreign country where there's cultures and people that you don't know and, and aren't familiar with. What was that process like in establishing things like rapport and having conversations and, and gaining that trust of people? That, that's a really good observation there, Oliver, and you're correct. And not only don't you have all those things you've just listed, you also don't have any powers. Don't forget the, the powers that I had that came with my warrant card. I left them at Dover absolutely no, no powers. So that also impacts on, on how you work. But I think I'll answer that question with how not to do it. There's no point in turning up at an overseas, in an overseas country or with an overseas investigation and trying to pretend that it's just exactly the same as it would be in the UK. And you can't use that phrase, oh, we would do this at home, or we would do that, or we have that. Because the answer is, they didn't have any of the facilities. They didn't have the wonderful forensic or scientific departments that I, I had the benefit of. And so you, you have to work with what you've got and you, you have to make sure you don't judge. You just do your best. You advise and you support. You don't judge. And it, it's not easy. We, we actually distributed leaflets because um, some people uh, in the community, it's a, we were in a, the accident was actually in a in a very, very remote mountainous community. And so we, we actually distributed to the villages leaflets with pictures of stick men and women to try and ascertain if anybody had seen the accident. And that's, that's the only time in the whole of my career where I've ever sought witnesses using drawings of stick men and women. So this comes back to really the essence of the professionalism of British policing, which was often sought out by jurisdictions outside the UK. The Caribbean is probably one that I'm more familiar with in terms of the sort of investigative capabilities of the Met and, and officers like yourselves being able to deploy and support with sort of complex investigations where the skill set may not quite be there in country, but you can provide that support and expertise. Yes, there were many requests. I believe they came in through the Foreign Office into the Home Office and the assessments were, were made long before they hit Scotland Yard as to whether we would or wouldn't help in some way because they were political, they were diplomatic decisions to be made. But once they had they had been made, in those days, yes, Scotland Yard did aid many quite high profile investigations around the world. Yes, that's true. So another one, I listened to a podcast that you did uh, some time ago, and we'll talk about this coming into sort of your latter part of your police career and post-policing career in terms of the involvement of piracy and the challenges that it places on large corporations and shipping companies all over the world that travel through some of the more treacherous waters where piracy is a significant risk to both crew, importantly, and vessels and, and, and the, uh, the cargo that they carry. Now, there's one investigation that you took part in, uh, and that was the, um, the investigation into the murder of Captain John Bashforth, who was murdered on, on his ship while sailing through the Malacca Straits. Now, there's, a, there's one thing having a homicide on land, and then there's another thing, having a homicide at sea. What are those differences and what are the challenges that are presented to you as an investigator? Well, yeah, that was a really interesting case. And, and thank you for mentioning it. We actually went to um, Singapore and, uh, and Indonesia to investigate the captain's death. But how it came about, I think, if, if I could take you back a little bit, it's a little bit more interesting. Um, the, the ship, um, Baltimore Zephyr, was boarded by pirates and the first officer and the captain were both murdered but the story that was created within the shipping world and within the captain's um, community at home was that he had been a very bad captain and that it had been a mutinous crew that killed him and that couldn't have been further from the truth we, we were able to prove he was a very kind and, and a very good captain and so it was his union uh, the rmt who who were pushing for a, a proper investigation because of all these spurious rumors that, that were circulating 
and because the fact that the pirates, who were really the bad guys in all of this, were getting away with it. And it took months, I think it might even have taken years, um, before it was agreed. There's many questions out asked in the House of Parliament about his death, and then it was agreed eventually that Scotland Yard would investigate it. So we were never going to find a smoky gun because too long had passed. We were never going to have a proper crime scene. That just wasn't, wasn't possible. But it was a lot of interviews, interviews about the actual crime, but also interviews about the man himself. Although I never met him, I always felt like with, with many people, this happens to me. You feel as though you do know them, even though you've never met them. And we were able to prove that um, he actually was protecting his crew when, when he was murdered. And it was absolute rubbish about him being a, a Captain Bly type character. We talk about the um, success of investigations not being that of just one person, but entire teams, whether it be family liaison officers, whether it be the SIO, whether it be um, the officers reviewing CCTV footage. It's a really a massive team team effort. When you look back at your sort of investigative career, was there anyone in particular that you looked up to and aspired or you looked at as, as, an, as a senior investigator and thought they have all the skills and the attributes of not only the leadership, but the investigative capabilities and the nous to get to the bottom of certain issues? Was there any sort of key influences in your career? Yeah, I think there was at, at various stages. Uh, I've been part of some amazing teams. I've led some amazing teams. So everybody has played their part. But I guess my first um, individual who fulfilled that criteria, they don't do this anymore, but they used to have something called puppy walking, which is a very derogatory title, I'm sure. But brand new probationers had to walk the streets with with um, established, older, confident, professional PCs who had done the job for decades. And so I spent my first three weeks walking around with um, with a PC called John. And I don't think John was too impressed that he'd got the only woman in the police station. But he he did a good job. And, and he instilled something in me, which I think has, has stuck with me all these years later. What, how many years? 40-odd years later. What he explained was that um, when you hit those streets, you, you're abused, horrible things happen to you. You witness things that you should never really ever have to see. It's just horrible. But what, what John explained to me was it's not you that has to deal with all that. It's nothing is personal. It's all aimed at the uniform. And and he was very good. And because I was young and keen, yes, John, yeah, really listened to him. He said that when you put your uniform in the locker at night, all that horror that it has witnessed in the day, all that unpleasantness that it has been a part of, it stays in that locker and you leave it there and you walk away and you'll sue again. And... That was instilled in me very, very early on, very young. And, you know, I think I've still got it because I, I deal now, obviously, with, with kidnaps, which are quite a... I, I talk to many people who are in a very dark place, sometimes literally, but I talk to people who are anxious, anxious families, concerned crisis managers, and I can come away from that call or that meeting and I can put it back in the locker until I need to take it out again. So I think that was my first early... Does that make sense on my waffling? No, no, it makes perfect sense. And I think to the untrained individual, they say, well, how callous of you? How can you not have feelings and thoughts of these people? But I think the uniqueness of policing is being able to compartmentalise this exposure to trauma. Because if you were to take all that home, and some people do naturally, because I think people have better coping mechanisms than other. I think the analogy of taking your uniform off, closing it in that locker... And then going home as Sue or as Ollie is the perfect way of being able to compartmentalise and not take that trauma home. Because obviously, if you allow it to build up, obviously, all sorts of yucky things can happen. We talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. We talk about other sort of mental health issues which flow from that. And I think the, the support networks which have grown over time in policing and recognising the challenges of that, that some people can do it and some people can't, is, is, is a very unique skill. And, and, and obviously, in your line of work, is probably one of the most important skills that you can have, along with others. Yeah, I, I would agree. If, if, if I was soaking everything up with everything that's happened over the years, goodness knows, I think I'd be quite a mess, really, if I'd even still be here. So, so I would always be, be grateful to that early intervention, which seemed to, um, to keep me steady for the rest of uh, my working life. So I want to talk about this um, brief period that you had between 1998 and 2001 in royalty protection, because, again, another incredible place to work, um, not only because of the family 
that you're looking after in terms of whether it's them as principals, if they're moving about London all over the country and globally, but also the homes they live in, their residential security, all critically important to their safety as one of the most important global families uh, that exists today. What was that like and that experience for you in that environment? It was a really strange environment, very strange. I hadn't actually worn a uniform, I think, for about 10, 12 years. And so I wasn't used to the uniform. I wasn't used to the rank. And I definitely wasn't used to that strange environment behind the walls of Buckingham Palace. And I can remember on my very first day crossing the road next to Buckingham Palace in my uniform. And this man was telling me that something was wrong with his car and he'd called the AA. And and I just looked at him and I said, that's fascinating, but, but why are you telling me? And he looked at me like I was a bit strange. And he said, I'm on a double yellow line. And I suddenly realized that I had forgotten the impact of the uniform on on the public. But going back to to royalty, yeah, it was three years I enjoyed immensely. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it because it once again it was interchange so I had to uh, put the uniform on again for uh, a term before I went back to to be promoted uh, as a detective chief inspector. So um, what did I learn from my three years? I, I had some tremendous insights, some fascinating funny stories that I can't always tell everybody but um, what I learned personally was I think if before royalty if you'd met say I'm going to meet you at two o'clock I'd be there at five two or possibly I'd probably be there at five past when you when you work within the um, the royal environment everything happens on the stroke of whatever time it's supposed to happen so I definitely got better timekeeping without a doubt also until I went there I think I was a, a person who put all her faith in plan a so plan a I've got a plan it's going to work we're going to do it this way But because the stakes are so high with the royal family, you actually have to have a plan B and you have to document plan B. So it's the first time in my life, and I still do it now, where, yep, this is going to work. This is plan A. But just in case it doesn't, this is plan B. So it taught taught me that as well. Um, I went to Scotland, obviously, for the um, the Balmoral tours. And that, that was interesting. Again, policing in a in a different a different environment I, I enjoyed that so although it was something that I hadn't sought the three years at royalty I think have stood me instead for for many aspects of the work I do now both with the humanitarian sector and the high net worth families and I, and I think also it's um it, it taught me to have a backup plan yeah and you were there during a period really um where the involvement and threat of terrorism was a very real thing for London um, and was never evolving issue in terms of the of nine eleven and other other issues which have come up since then. So there there are significant pressures in terms of that role and being able to manage those pressures must be a, a key factor in understanding threat and risk and its ever evolving dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Because the London palaces, I was uh, chief inspector operations at the London the three London palaces, St James's, Kensington, and, and Buck House, and so. Yeah, we were obviously always going to be a target. Many uh, hoax calls, a few false alarms, but um, and sadly a couple of people over the walls. But but nothing uh, of the of the terror related aspect during uh, during my watch. So let's talk about now your your life in hostage negotiation and response work because it's 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 a huge part of your life. It has been for many many years, and you've had an incredibly successful career and continue to have a fascinating and successful career in this arena. But from a policing perspective, for those of us that aren't really aware of, you know, when people think of police hostage negotiators, they probably go back to the um, Samuel Jackson movie where he's being sort of tempted to come down from a building after taking a bunch of cops hostage. But it's so much more than that. It's actually more it's more coming to the crisis of people that don't think their lives are worth living anymore in terms of suicide and talking people out of dangerous situations and communication through hard work. Oh, most definitely. It's it's negotiating people in crisis, whether they think they want to end their life, whether they truly intend on ending their life, or whether they've just found themselves in a situation that they don't know how to get to get out of. Yeah, you're right, it has been a big impact on my life. I, I think I've, I've said before how much I feel privileged to be able to do this sort of work. Over, over the years, I've negotiated particularly post-MET, because I've, I've got involved quite a bit with many international NGOs in the humanitarian sector. 
One of the main aid groups in Central African Republic says it's optimistic a kidnapped French charity worker could be released today. The French woman being held is known as Therese Claudia Priest. The 67-year-old woman was seized along with a local clergyman when their truck was stopped in a northern part of Bangui that's controlled by mostly Christian anti-Balaka militia. The spokesman for the group blamed the former faction for her abduction. We want peace so that we can avoid a repeat of this type of behavior. Negotiations are underway and I believe they'll do what's necessary so that she can be freed. Central African Republic sank into chaos when the mainly Muslim Seleka group seized power nearly two years ago. A backlash from the anti-Balaka militia led to violence that's killed and, thousands. And they are the people whose staff are being kidnapped, but not the expats, not their international staff. It's their locally employed staff who are being kidnapped, kidnapped in the country of their birth. And they, those, those type of kidnaps, they're not usually as long as an international one. They rarely go political. A political kidnap is the hardest, one of the hardest kidnaps to resolve. They're, the ransoms are, are usually for, for lower amounts of money. And the impact of the media is very, very low whereas the impact of the media on a, an international hostage-taking is incredibly high. And so I don't think the world knows, just, just the, the locally employed people who are being kidnapped because usually it's, it's the husband or the father works for an international NGO or, or corporate where you can Google how much money they have. So over the years, um, I've negotiated with representatives from most of the terror organisations that, that would come to mind, mostly for locally employed staff. Obviously, the negotiation with the pirates, and that's a different type of, of, of negotiation, really, because it's more of a bundle. It's more of a, I don't mean a fight. I mean, it's more of a, a package. You, you have to negotiate the lives of the crew, and obviously that would always be the most important. You have to negotiate sometimes the cargo, but sometimes the cargo is part of the deal. You have to negotiate the, the vessel, but most importantly, and sometimes quite timely because of weather conditions involving monsoons, etc., you have to negotiate a free passage away from the area. And if, if you don't have that package, you haven't really got a good negotiation that's going to be safe in some way. This is our 27th day in captivity. So far, we have been provided with adequate food and water and facilities. And so we are unharmed and in reasonable physical health. Mentally, we are under great stress and threatened. Our kidnappers are losing patience. They are concerned that there has been no response at all to their demands for money. We ask the government and the people of Britain and our families to do whatever you can to at least open negotiations with these people about money so that perhaps our lives can be brought back. We have been threatened that there is a terrorist gang at large in the country looking for us. We are also concerned that these people will lose patience and will not feed us and I have no doubt that they will not hesitate to, to kill us, perhaps within a week or so now, if there is no response. So please, somebody get in touch. Otherwise, we just sleepwalk to a tragic ending. And we are told that we will not be fed and given water. So we are very concerned about the future. Our captives are very impatient now that nobody has been in touch to enter into negotiations. So we ask the government and the people of Britain and our family to do whatever they can to enter into negotiations with these people to buy back our lives. As Paul has said, we are told that there is a terrorist cell or a fanatic cell trying, searching for us. So that's a, a more of a, 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 a multi-aspect negotiation. Then um, the cyber uh, negotiations have been interesting. And anybody that knows me will know I'm not blessed 
with the greatest eye skills in the world. So how it, how it has worked so far is I do what I'm good at, which is buying time, influencing people, and the bright young people who know about IT do what they're good at, whilst I'm, I'm buying the time, as it were. And, um, and then the organised crime. I've, I've negotiated with members of organised crime, which is usually about some form of debt collection, to be honest. A drugs deal that they haven't paid or, or firearms or sex industry. And then, as you mentioned, the suicide intervention. So in their way, they're all negotiation, but it's it's different negotiating with a terrorist. It's different negotiating with a professional criminal. It's different negotiating with a pirate's communicator. They use communicators. And, it, and it's different, again, trying to convince somebody that, that life is worth worth living. But all of them require the same core skills of empathy, creating tactical empathy, not sympathy, but, but empathy, using, using the right words at the right time, listening, silence. So silence is, is not just a virtue. Silence and patience, they, they can be a weapon as well. And that's, they're a, a good tool to have in the box. So whilst all those aspects of negotiating I've been involved in, are completely different they all require the same core skills and, and would i be right in saying that a, a any sort of hostage negotiation situation situation from a policing perspective is not something that probably generally happens between nine and five they can happen anytime generally speaking it's after hours middle of the night you're fast asleep the, the after hours phone rings and says sue we've got a crisis yep you're right and uh, i i had a great friend sadly he's he's passed away now but he was an excellent negotiator and he would ring you up when you're in your nice warm duvet fast asleep and he would ring you up and he would say, Sue, are you ready to come out and save a life tonight? And that was that was his opening gambit, bless him, David. And I agree. No, if only they did happen between nine and five. Yeah, it's awkward times. Again, you just got to adapt. You, you've just got to be that person that gets the job done. C can I ask you how you manage fatigue in lengthy negotiations? Yeah, that's, that's getting hard, harder as the years go by. But in all truthfulness, the very beginning of a hostage taking is very busy. Perhaps the first two, three weeks are very, very busy. But then a pattern sets in. A schedule sets in because negotiations don't take place every day. They don't play, take place all the time. So eventually you, you move into a phase which is more scheduled and, and which is more manageable. So these days I don't travel to the danger hotspots of the world that I used to. Um, two reasons, really. One, when you work for the British government, you get the protection of the British government. Obviously, I don't get that anymore. And second, um, technology has meant that I can do an awful lot of the support work via a different means. There's probably a third one, actually. I'm getting older. So that's another reason why I don't go. Yeah. I, I, from, from, from a private sector perspective, I've always been intrigued in terms of you talked about that, you know, you've got sort of in-country staff that get taken and they become the, the bartering tool for the, for the kidnappers or whoever these bad actors are. And you've got CEOs of sort of big companies and then you've got CEOs of small companies. And I would imagine there would be a significant difference between the two because in a smaller company, the CEOs may know these individuals. There may be a personal relationship which they've developed over many years. And I, I, I would imagine it would be very difficult for them to be part of this CMT, the crisis management team, responding to such a complex and dynamic event. Yeah, again, that's a good observation. The um, From my personal experiences, sometimes the smaller organisations can be a bit more nimble because I need fast time decision making. And as, an, as a negotiator, you do not make many, we don't make any of the management decisions at all. But you rely on people to give you those decisions when you find the facts. And sometimes I'm asking people to make decisions when they don't have the full picture because we can't always get the full picture. So sometimes the smaller organisations are a bit nimble and decisions come through quicker. Sometimes with the large organisations, that decision-making policy is a lot more consultative, communicative. But really, in, in fast-time crime, you don't have the time to have those kumbaya moments and, 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 and really consult everybody you would want to. It's, it's an honest fact that sometimes you have to make fast decisions. And, and I have personally found the smaller organisations make them a lot better. In these fast-time crimes, fast-time, fast-moving, the, um, the bigger ones can sometimes be a bit slow because they're not used to it so much. And you make a good point about um, the smaller organisations. Acceptance within the um, 
humanitarian world, acceptance of, let's say, the NGO. They, there are some very brave people in NGOs in some very dangerous parts, parts of the world at the moment. But they sometimes have a level of acceptance that other, other people would never aspire to and, and other people wouldn't deserve. And so by using that acceptance, you're right, they do have the contacts, they do have the influence, they do have the people who can become intermediaries. And, and so that, that's helpful. The larger organisations have them as well, but we normally don't find them as quickly as we do with the smaller organisations. And then there's the added dynamic of managing families and making sure that they don't do the wrong things or take sort of negotiations away and do all of them privately because they think they can do a better job or they panic. How do you, obviously, in a, in a policing environment, you've got family liaison officers, you've got this whole complex team which is behind the scenes supporting the families and being that communicative arm between the sort of the front line and what's happening. In a private setting, I assume sort of that support network might be there, but equally, I assume a lot of it falls back on you as the expert. Yeah, and, and supporting the families is very important to me as well. One, because I would like to try and make family who are going through an extraordinary, unimaginable, heartbreaking experience just a tiny, tiny bit better. Can't do much, but you, you can be there to guide them and, and to advise them. But also, nowadays, if a family um, decide to do their own thing, it doesn't always make, make matters better. The thing about kidnap, Oliver, is it, it doesn't happen very often. So it's, it's, it's quite low frequency. But when it does happen, it's a huge impact. It's a huge impact on everybody's lives. And because it doesn't happen very often, many people, crisis management teams, big organisations, NGOs, politicians, they don't always know what to do. So therefore, when you come with the decades of experience that I've got, it's really helpful to sit down with them and to, to talk to them honestly about how you feel and what best advice you can give. But in, in this world of, of fake CVs and fake everything. Um, I've, I've recently, in the past, what, four, five, five six years, come across individuals who say they are hostage negotiators. Now, I will know if somebody is a genuine one, A, because of my network, the training, everything. Big companies will know the, general, the, the real ones because they will do their due diligence. So they will know. But sadly, the people who are employing these Mickey Mouse negotiators are families, usually because they're cheaper than, than, than the real thing in some way. And so having somebody to do this sort of work without the training that real negotiators have and having somebody do this work without the authenticity and without the integrity of this type of work is really worrying because people's lives are at risk. And actually, there isn't any guidance. Now, I would not be allowed... Not that I would want to, but I would not be allowed to stand outside a, a nightclub and be a bouncer because I would not be an accredited SIA, SIA person. Yeah, So I could never do that job or say I could do that job. But anybody can actually call themselves um, a hostage negotiator if they've read a book, done an online course or something. And, and they're, the, they're the sort of individuals you have to protect families from because some of them are like, I call them ambulance chasers. They, they, they will approach the family cold. So you, so you have to warn families about those people. You have to warn families that there's the mad, sad and the bad out there. You have to warn families that the kidnappers may contact them directly. So there's so much you have to pass on and inform a family to and get them prepared that they have to be on that journey with you. Because if the family are doing something which is not going to result in the safe and timely return of their loved one, it becomes a distraction. So the whole of the CMT are suddenly not focused on progressively working to bring in the hostage home. The CMT have been diverted to, to managing or trying to manage the family because the family are motivated by love. But because of that strong motivation, sometimes they go off in a direction which is, is not always in the interests of the desired outcome or best for the hostage. One of the significant evolutions of the last 10, 15, 20 years has not only been social media, but it's been the, uh, the, the ever-growing presence of a 24-hour news media cycle. It's constantly pumping out. And what is tweeted now will get round the globe probably within half an hour to an hour if it's, if it's, a, if it's a sexy enough subject. How does, how does that interfere or how does that affect your decision-making processes in terms of either impeding or supporting what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, you're so right about social media. Um, when I first began um, this work of negotiation, obviously before social media, 
the proof of life question. I expect you're familiar with that. It's a it's a question that we ask the hostage that only the hostage in their family know the answer to. I didn't realise during those halcyon days how easy that task was then. It's changed now because people put their whole lives, for some reason I don't quite understand, people put their whole lives on, on social media. So when we are trying to work out a, a proof of life question, it makes it a little bit harder. Also, there's so much information out there that fake kidnappers can pretend that they have the hostage because they use the information which is out there either on social media or general open source and so they will contact the family and even something like a lost phone can generate a, a fake kidnap even somebody going into the cinema or the theater and being asked to switch off the phone can generate a fake kidnap but then when you have a real kidnap Nowadays, you have to deal with the fake kidnappers, the people that say we've got them, we're holding them. And that's very, again, very time consuming and a big distraction as well. So, yes, the, the social media has impacted in the proof of life, I would say, the, the fake kidnappers who pretend to be holding them. that obviously we have to eliminate from our inquiries. They also put lies out there and you cannot challenge everything that's on social media about a particular incident because there would be too much but very occasionally if you don't challenge a lie it becomes the truth and that's what you have to guard against so very occasionally you do have to challenge a lie but there just wouldn't be the time in the world for the communications departments of organizations to be addressing all the inaccuracies and the rumors and really some stuff that's put out there just by people who, who seem to get some pleasure from reminding families of the misery that they're in and I don't understand those people, but I've come across them a lot. There's that interesting saying that um, train hard, fight easy. And I would imagine a large portion of your portfolio is around the effective preparation and planning for a possible kidnap scenario. Uh, would you Do you prefer walking into a crisis management team with a minimalistic plan or a Bible of information you've got to try and trawl through? Yeah, uh, first answer is I... I I, I like to walk into a team who know each other. You will be surprised how many times I've walked in and people are introducing each other and and in the, the years gone by, they were looking at a piece of paper and it's very apparent that this is the crisis plan and this is the first time they've read it. When one of their colleagues is in a dangerous situation, the other side of the world. And that's disheartening because they said their colleague there, they, they should have been prepared to get him or her home if, if there was a problem. So personally, um, yes, the training. I, I can notice the difference when I respond to a, a current kidnap, I know whether or not that team have worked together. I know whether that team have practiced and I, and I know that they have faced the difficult decisions in, in peacetime rather than facing the difficult decisions when, when you've actually got somebody's life at risk. So. I, you asked me the question about the plan. No, you don't want to be reading a big tomb of work, tome of work. You, I like wiring diagrams. If this happens, go to that, do that. I, I like checklists. My whole life's on a checklist, both at, both at work and at home. I'm a big list person. So I will have like the Rolls Royce of all checklists, much of which will not be relevant in each individual case. But so I, I don't want to be reading, reading, reading lots of stuff. And crisis management plans have to evolve. You can't write one two years ago and just think job done because so much impacts on the response. Cyber is, 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 impacting, is on, impacting on the response. Legislation, human rights aspects is impacting on the response. Travel, communication is impacting. So they have to be revisited and reviewed regularly to keep them current and dynamic. They're dynamic documents and they shouldn't just be written and, and something that um, is also a little bit disheartening is a crisis management plan should be bespoke to the organisation or the high net family that it refers to. You cannot cut and paste, but I do see an awful lot of cut and paste where plans have been produced. They, they were written for somebody else and it's uh, it doesn't work. I will not write the plan on my own. I insist on writing it very closely with somebody who knows about the organisation because I could write a plan but it has to survive contact and it has to be relevant to the individual or the organisation in some way. But testing the plans is, 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 is crucial, really.
I did a little bit of research before our chat, and I, I read, and these statistics may slightly be out, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it's about 4 to 5% of people that are involved in a kidnap situation tragically don't get through that get through that period or don't get through that event for one way or another um, but obviously we want those stats to come down but equally that's quite a low figure I, I would imagine that the first which I suppose we talk about the, the golden hour or the, the first 24 hours are really the intense period of negotiation because there's, there's really a lot of unknown for everybody really the, the kidnappers don't know how you're going to respond you don't know how they're going to respond we don't know about the welfare of the individual that's subject to this abhorrent treatment would I be right in that that the first sort of early stages 24 48 hours are crucial for you and your role and everybody absolutely yeah and, and I think the golden hour was, was something that was stolen from the medical profession but it's very true within that and you're never going to do it in, in an hour but definitely within the 12 hours you have to establish the response which direction, who's going to take responsibility for it. And, and how, how you set the scene in, in those early hours really does impact on, on how the response unfolds as you go along. That, that's very true indeed, yes. And I guess ultimately the motivation for the individuals involved is important to ascertain. The true motivation, yeah. They may say one particular motivation, you peel back the layers and discover others. Just to, to go back slightly, Oliver, you mentioned about the stats. I think with kidnap and ransom and sieges and hostage taking, the stats come with a very a very clear health warning because we don't really know what we don't know, quote somebody else, because the only stats we really have come from the insurance industry. But that we will never know. But I think that is just the tip of the amount of kidnaps that take place, particularly with local staff. So I don't think we really know. So yes, that figure does fluctuate between four and seven percent. You're quite right. But that is on the reported crimes. But we don't really know about the unreported crimes. But when that four or seven percent happens, obviously it's devastating. And I would never dream of saying to anybody, your, your daughter's been kidnapped, but there's a 93 percent chance that she'll come home. I would never dream of saying that. And I never I never use those statistics at all, really, because I think they paint a picture which is too hopeful. And also, I don't think they're an on. A, a good picture because of the lack of reporting of this particular crime. 2003, just winding back the clock a little bit, you were awarded the Queen's Police Medal. And obviously that is an award given to a select few when you look at the sort of quantum numbers of police officers uh, that have served and are serving any one time. It's in its hundreds of thousands. That must have been an incredibly proud day for you and your family to be able to go to the palace to meet Her Majesty the Queen at the time, to be awarded this prestigious medal for your services to policing and in probably particular areas of hostage negotiation. Uh, that, that, must, that must be a career highlight for you. It was. And um, the, the funny thing about it, in those days, the letter asking you if you're willing to accept the award is sent um, recorded to the sent recorded delivery. And um, I was obviously away from home a lot. And um, I wasn't there when the letter arrived and they put through one of those slips to say you had to sign for it in the post office. But also at that time, parking tickets were delivered in the same the same way. So I <laughs> automatically assumed that this document I had to collect from the past the post office was a another parking ticket fine. And so I didn't. I, it was three weeks before I actually went went to collect it, which turned out to be good because it was three weeks less that I had to keep the secret because you're not allowed to tell anybody. So that, that was a benefit of that. But yeah, I was I, I didn't see it coming. It was um, a complete surprise. The family were over the moon. And it was a bit of a payback for them, because, you know, I have walked out on family parties. I have been missing for important events. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a lovely day. And I was particularly pleased because it was the Queen, uh, the late Queen, who, um, who awarded me the medal and we had a, a nice chat about some Commonwealth com countries. Uh, I was just going to round off on that in terms of, you know, you've had this incredible more than 30-year career in British policing. You've had a phenomenal post-policing career, which is still going on today. And for you to be as successful as you have done, and for equally other police officers who've had these incredible careers, both during and post in their sort of private commercial lives, takes a lot of support from family and friends. As you say, it impacts on terms of events that you may not always be able to make. I assume it's no different in your family. You've got a great support network behind you. Yeah, um, they get me. They understand why I do it. I don't know for how long, though. I'm not sure... I'm not sure what the exit strategy is. I've got to work on that. 
but no I, I am hugely supported and I wouldn't do it otherwise I don't think now because I have been doing it a very long time but I still get that buzz when when I know that the, the, the former hostages on their way home not when they're out because they're still in danger but when I know they're on their way home, I still get that buzz that I got from the very first one. And so perhaps, I don't know, I don't think that's ever going to leave me. I don't think it is. You know, I do think about, about, about retiring for the second time. But then somebody phones up, they say, we've got this case, will you help? And I, I just find myself saying yes before I've even thought about it. That, so I don't know how, how I deal with that. But I, I'll, I'll put that in one of those um, lockers that I'll open another, another, another day, I think. Um, recently, about eight years ago, uh, Oxford Sayed Business School um, approached me from Oxford University and I, I now um, assist their open programme of negotiation and many of their business. They they thought, I didn't see this at all, they approached me and said, we think your negotiation skills are transferable skills into the business world. So, so for the past eight years, um, I've also been working with Oxford. They've very kindly made me an associate fellow there as well. So I, I feel a big commitment to them. Maybe that might be part of, uh, of the baby steps to my exit strategy. I don't know yet. And to any sort of aspiring police officer or our former peers that are sitting, especially young ladies who are just entering into the vocation of policing, who see this as incredibly inspirational and thinking, well, you know what, that looks like an incredible journey. What would your biggest piece of advice be in terms of pursuing this dream of hostage negotiation if you can give any advice i think not not just with, with my specialism but if you find you have a passion for something with a passion comes energy and with that energy comes a desire to be the best that you possibly can so i think if you have a passion for anything you, you should throw yourself at it there's, there's very few of us who are lucky enough to identify an achievable passion when it comes to negotiation i would say Find a genuine route into the subject and only train or learn from people who are the real thing and not the, the, the people who are out there at the moment, which is not an ethical way of doing the subject. Well, Sue, it's been a fascinating uh, just over an hour of conversation learning about what is as relevant today as it has ever been in terms of the work that you have done and continue to do and the impact that you have undoubtedly had with many, many different families and organisations right across the globe. Um, on behalf of my little team here at the Protect and Serve podcast, thank you ever so much for sharing such an inspirational and remarkable story. Thank you ever so much for your more than 30 years of police service, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Sue Williams, thank you ever so much. Well, no, thank you, Oliver. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. You look after yourself and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.